Hello and welcome to the Neurology Nuts and Bolts podcast, a podcast all about constructing your career in neurology. I'm your host and founder of the podcast, Sarah Schaefer from the Yale School of Medicine. Today we are going to be diving in with a couple of attorneys, actually, as opposed to medical doctors, in an episode titled... Do you have any disclosures? Conflicts of interest. We'll be speaking with John Hutchins, who serves as general counsel of the American Academy of Neurology, and Mimi Riley, who is a professor of law, public health sciences, and public policy at the University of Virginia, and teaches health law, bioethics, and regulation of clinical research, among others. Thank you for joining us today, both of you. Thanks for having me. Yes, thank you, Dr. Shaver. So one of the things that I learned about when I became a new faculty was the Sunshine Act. And I only, even now, know only a little bit about it. Um, What is the Sunshine Act and who does it affect, um, including, you know, people in various parts of the country or the world and what classes of providers? Yeah, so the the Sunshine Act, um, its formal name is the Physician Payments Sunshine Act, and that was enacted uh, as a federal regulation in 2010. And what it does generally is it requires applicable manufacturers of medical devices and pharmaceuticals to report payments or transfers of value that are provided to physicians or to teaching hospitals. Okay, so I take it to mean from the name of the official name of the act that said the word physicians in it, that that includes just physicians and not other providers like nurse practitioners, physician assistants, nurses. Is that correct? Originally, that was correct. Um, And for the first couple, more than a couple of years of uh, since its enactment, um, it applied to physicians. But more recently, uh, that's been broadened to understand the influence of other practitioners in this area. And so what you now have is advanced practice providers are also included in the Sunshine Act report uh, disclosure requirements. Okay. And what kinds of commitments are automatically reported to the Sunshine Act? And what is the consequence for physicians? Are there things that they may do that you might think of as a conflict of interest, but that are not automatically disclosed? Mimi? The disclosures are interactions, and it's a good way to think of it as the different types of interactions that Um, physicians might have with a manufacturer or producer of medical products. So the first category of disclosures are transfers. It's always got to be a transfer of value. A transfer of value can be de minimis, though. Anything over $10 counts as a transfer of value. So the first category is a transfer such as meals, travel reimbursements, and consulting fees. Then there's a second category, and this is the one that often uh, catches physicians up where they don't expect this sort of thing to be reported, but that applies to ownership interests and investment interests. Um, And importantly, it's not just your investment or ownership interests, but anyone in your immediate family. Uh, So people don't expect that it's going to apply to their spouse or dependent children if they have things, So, but it does. The 
third category, and this one is a little bit different. The flow goes a little bit differently because there's a recognition that research funds may not go directly to the researcher. It may actually flow through their institution. So the disclosure also flows through the institution. But that covers any payment that's made for research, clinical trials, or other product development. So with regards to the Sunshine Act and just conflicts of interest in general, I agree the investments is a little bit of a surprise or or just question mark for a lot of physicians. I, I sh- couldn't be the only physician who just sticks their money into some fund and lets them figure it out um, <laughs> on the other end. And and I honestly have no idea where that money is or or what it's being invested in. What is the responsibility of the physician to know the details of these portfolios? Are there ways to request that the portfolios exclude these types of problems? Well, I think an important, Mimi, correct me if I'm wrong, but an an important exclusion for reporting here are investments that are involved in a mutual fund. So you wouldn't have to go through your mutual fund to determine um, what, if any, manufacturers are included in those particular funds. So in that regard, you you have one piece that helps. Yeah, the notion is that mutual funds, you can't influence a mutual fund. You don't have control over its purchasing or selling decisions. And so even if you have an interest, that interest is actually diluted over the whole uh, mutual fund. On the other hand, if you own an individual stock, for example, arguably its price may go up or down depending on something that you do. And in those instances, it's viewed as a possible conflict of interest. So for those of us who are putting money into a fidelity, fidelity retirement account or something like that, are those, are those part of that sort of mutual fund exclusion? It, it is, and you should feel pretty good about that. Um, it's actually when you get richer and you start having a financial advisor who's helping you with individual stocks that it's going to be a real problem. And those can be real headaches. Although you don't have, in the Sunshine Act, you don't have the disclosure responsibility, but you do have to check and make sure it's correct. Uh, and that's where individual stocks can start creating headaches. That, that's right, Mimi. I, I was just going to make that really important distinction. When we're talking about the Sunshine Act, it's, it's the manufacturers, it's the companies that are required to report under this act. It's not the individual physicians who are being required to report. But as Mimi noted, it's important to take a look at the reports that come in to ensure that they're accurate from your perspective as a physician. And there's an opportunity or at least a notice period wherein you can dispute a particular report that a manufacturer has you know, put into the system regarding a payment. Uh, and certainly, uh, as we will talk about, there are plenty of instances where you yourself are reporting to various institutions like your own academic center or the American Academy of Neurology if you're uh, having a speaking engagement or something like that. So um, that's really helpful to know. I'm not quite there yet with being wealthy enough to have my own (laughs) financial manager, but um, oh, well, maybe some of our listeners are. All right. So aside from dealing with industry, pharmaceutical companies, device companies, those types of things, what issues arise when involving oneself in other activities like 
serving on the board of a political action committee or working for a nonprofit. So now you're moving into really a different field. A lot of this involves tax law um, at more than, say, classic conflicts, conflicts of interest. But for example, if you start getting involved in politics, you may, and you're in a classic 501c3, you may actually endanger the tax uh, exempt status of that entity if you're getting involved in politics through the entity, not if you're getting involved yourself. You always have a First Amendment right to speak by, for yourself, but you have to be very careful to make sure you're not speaking for the entity. This can even be important for physicians who are in public universities. They have to be careful not to be lobbying for the institution, but make it very clear that they're lobbying for themselves. Anything to add to that, John? You know, I think uh, the other perspective is, and Mimi touched on this a little bit, but what are, from your institutions or your practices perspective, what are nonprofits or political action committees that they would view your service on those as being conflicting with their business and their you know, so in some cases, nonprofit um, purpose. Um, and so, for example, you know, with the American Academy of Neurology, uh, when we, if you serve as a director for the academy, you have a fiduciary responsibility of loyalty to our organization when you're serving on our board. And there may be um, competing organizations that we feel as though you can't serve both our organization and on their organization's board at the same time because of those competing interests. That's fairly rare. Um, in most cases, it's really about disclosing those relationships and then managing those appropriately. But that's something where I think from an institutional perspective, you wanted to, you'd want to understand um, if your institution has any rules on what, what type of nonprofits or political action committees you get involved with. So this is a great segue because we've been sort of touching on all these different levels of oversight, right? There's the federal level of oversight with the Sunshine Act. There are institutional levels of oversight. Different hospitals might have oversight and rules. The American Academy of Neurology or other organizations, medical organizations, and even states, and we'll get into that as well. But what are the different rules that institutions or hospitals that a physician works for may have regarding conflicts of interest? Mimi? So when you look at those, the ones, and these involve actual disclosure requirements. So uh, for us, for example, two of the major would be if you're getting federal funding from NIH or such, you then are subject to public health service regulation. Um, and that requires you to disclose, for example, any related interest, that related part is important, but any related interest to your research endeavor that exceeds $5,000. And then there are state requirements, and every state has it a little bit different. So if you've come from New York to Virginia, you have a whole new set of rules you need to, to know. Now, the good news is institutions are very sensitive to these conflicts of interest issues. So they have very detailed policies. Those policies are put up on the website. 
every year you get an email that you should not ignore uh, that says if you meet this criteria or your spouse or a family member meets this criteria, you need to disclose. And after that disclosure, if it creates a problem, it goes usually to a committee that tries to either um, deal with the conflict, mitigate it, or actually make it a, a determination that you can't participate in something because of that conflict or you have to sell your assets, for example. Yeah, it's easy to just click through those emails. <laughs> we get it's so very easy and it's done all the time and surprise. All right. Well, shifting gears a little bit, um, how might conflicts of interest impact career opportunities such as your ability to be eligible for grants um, and kind of related how does it work when you partner with industry for clinical trials and they provide money for the clinical trial of which you are the PI, for example? So when you look at this, um, it, it can impact whether you can get grants. If you, for example, you have a major equity interest or something like that that is in conflict with and related to the research that you choose to do, that may mean you cannot get that grant. In the context of clinical trials, for example, if you have a related interest that creates a conflict, you may not be able to be a principal investigator or even any investigator. Then in other instances, we may have a situation where we're going to, we're very worried about human subjects in this context. And so that's a major focus in these decisions. So there might be a way that we can mitigate it by actually blocking you off from any contact with human subjects, but allowing you to do parts of a study uh, where you might have a related interest, but you're absolutely essential to the conduct of the research. So it has impact on that. Um, at the same time, I don't want to tell people that um, they shouldn't do some of this work because a lot of times when they're doing this type of work, that means they're really innovative. It's a consequence of the situation we have with Bayh-Dole where we actually made a decision that we weren't going to say that researchers or their institutions couldn't have intellectual property in their own inventions. But it does mean you have to manage it. Yeah, I would, you know, I would add to that. I think, um, you know, in my opinion, complete avoidance of relationships with industry really is, for the most part, not a reasonable strategy because there's there's clearly areas of appropriate mutual gain that would be sacrificed unnecessarily if that were the case. And there really are effective and acceptable ways to you know, disclose the relationships, to manage the relationships, to recuse yourself when uh, warranted. So really it's finding that right balance, I think, is, is the best approach. Right. So being on focus groups or um, doing advisory boards or involving yourself in the industry in the context of clinical trials or something like that, that moves hopefully is moving medicine forward and providing you with network opportunities and all those things might be something not to totally shy away from, but maybe we're past, uh, we definitely are past the point where you're getting uh, funded trips to Hawaii and things like that for no good reason, right? 
and, and that's not going to fly. Those those things are not going to fly at all. But but the relationships do. You've got to have a consulting ability with industry, especially when you're the foremost expert in that area. And 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 the rules are written in such a way that they actually do recognize that fact. Um, it's when people get in trouble, in my experience, it's when they don't look at all or they're ignoring the problem. They're not talking to their chair, for example, knowing how things might be involved in some of these decisions. And as a result, um, ignorance is not bliss. Yeah, that that's actually a, a really good point. Um, something that I should ask you both is there are there any yeah any other specific situations that you feel like people should just be aware of where you've found people that you've been advising getting into trouble? In my own experience, uh, the places where I've seen trouble is, for example, you're the main inventor. A lot of institutions don't. Uh, pursue the full patent on all inventions that are done in the university. So they pass the intellectual property or at least some of the intellectual property back to the researcher. They have a company and it has, they own a percentage of the equity, but it has no value at all. And they think, well, it has no value. How could I possibly have a conflict of interest? But equity itself is is a, a reason to have a conflict of interest because, you know, that equity might actually have value downstream. And so for me, it's when you make assumptions about what matters and what doesn't and you don't check. You don't even have to know the rules. No one's asking you to turn into a lawyer. But what they are asking you to do is make a disclosure to your uh, conflicts of interest committee and let them help you work through the problems. Along those same lines, I think not really where I see you know people getting into trouble, but um, more so people kind of questioning the process is when academic journals like neurology um, or CME providers like the academy and other organizations require the author or the faculty member to disclose all relationships within a, usually within a time period. So typically within 24, the past 24 months, disclose all relationships, not just those that they themselves think might be relevant to the particular article or to the CME program that they're teaching at for the purpose of really giving the learner and the reader the benefit of knowing all the relationships that 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 person has, and they can kind of decipher what they deem as really being relevant. So again, not really an issue and people getting in trouble, it's just more so trying to understand why kind of more disclosure, more transparency is helpful in those particular instances. And of course, we didn't really touch on this directly because I, I made the assumption that it's, that it's, understood why this is important, right? It's it's important because we want to be as objective as we can be in the way that we practice medicine, the way that we do our research, the way that we teach others. Anything else to add to that? Yeah. One thing I'd add, um, and this is something John and I are very familiar with, but physicians really take differently. A conflict, if, if you have a conflict of interest, it's not a comment on your moral <laughs> character. It's a conflict 
that is financial in nature, um, could be other types of conflicts. But for us as lawyers, that means this is something we need to think about how to address. How do we mitigate that conflict so that exactly the the major issues that you talked about, Sarah, that we want to have research that is not influenced by financial interests. But at the same time, we also realize how financial interests are important to the development of drugs and other types of products. And so don't take this, when you hear from a conflicts of interest committee, don't take it, oh, they have impugned my, um, you know, my moral character and uh, a pox on all of you. (laughs) Um, Instead, it really needs to be that, um, you know, how do we deal with this problem? Right. And I think that at the heart of it, it's um, the individual and the institution of medicine dealing with it on their own um, and being forthcoming about that information and figuring out an appropriate way to manage those, those different types of relationships. You know, I'm always quick to say that when we're collecting information on disclosure forms, we're collecting disclosed relationships. We're not assuming they're all conflicts right out of the gate, right? These are relationships that you have. Some might be conflicting, depends on the context or the role. But the, at the end of the day, the concern is that having a unmitigated or a conflict that really is not addressed or is not you're not transparent about ultimately can diminish the confidence that you know your patients or the members of the public have in, in you or your practice or the practice of medicine. And so it's really important at, at the heart that the practice or the field of medicine is concerned about these things and um, making sure that they're disclosed and handled appropriately. And finally, what should a physician or other provider do if they don't know whether something's okay? Um, what kinds of resources are out there? Who should they ask? You mentioned the chair, Mimi, and the conflict of interest committee. Do you have any other suggestions? Uh, the website, <laughs> your university's website. All you need to do is plug in name of university plus conflict of interest, and a whole lot of stuff is going to suddenly appear on your screen. Understand enough of it so you know how it may affect you and then start asking questions. And I'd say um, even more broadly, you know, the Academy has a code of professional conduct that establishes the professional standards that AAN members must or should observe in clinical, academic, scientific activities. You know, there are specific provisions on conflict of interest management in that document. And our Ethics and Law and Humanities Committee really oversees that particular document and is always available to field questions if there are some. And even more broadly than that, if you love the Sunshine Act and you want to know more about it, the AMA has been very involved in the lobbying and work for physicians on that and has a really good website. Well, you guys have certainly made me a little less terrified of engaging with industry uh, in a way that's productive. And uh, thank you for that. I'm sure our listeners will benefit from this discussion. Absolutely. It's been a pleasure. Thank you so much for having us. All right. In light of this discussion, we're going to launch into the disclosures. 
Neurology Nuts and Bolts podcast was created and produced by myself, Sarah Schaefer. It is not recorded as an official podcast of any institution or organization. The podcast is unfunded. Opinions are those of the individual participants, music by Audrey Nath, artwork by Shivani Goshal. Want more content like this? Be sure to subscribe to the Neurology Nuts and Bolts podcast wherever you get your podcasts to hear more about constructing your career in neurology. Follow us on Twitter at NeuroBolts and on Facebook at Neurology Nuts and Bolts to stay up to date on new content and give us feedback on what you want to hear and tell your friends. Thanks for joining us.